Welcome to the Republic of the Rio Grande, Episode 5, The Federalist Revolts. I'm Brandon Seal. By 1835, the people of the Rio Grande Bias were pissed off at the Mexican central government. 25 years after their own Bernardo Gutierrez de Lara had led the region's independence movement against Spain, their new government still did little to protect them from the hazards of life on the frontier all while continuing to assess them import duties at 25% or more of the value of the goods they bought. Unfortunately, the Mexican central government depended on import duties for 80 to 90% of its revenue, so it's understandable why they were reluctant to lower those duties. But that didn't explain why some goods were prohibited from import altogether, including basic essentials like cotton and cloth. The sale of those goods was still reserved for well-placed monopolists at artificially high prices, even as the same goods sold for a quarter or an eighth as much in New Orleans. This was something that affected people up and down the economic ladder, from stock raisers like Antonio Zapata to lawyers like Antonio Canales, and it created a really unfortunate dynamic. In the words of a contemporary, quote, As might reasonably be expected in any country where the duties on foreign goods amount almost to prohibition, smuggling ceases to be a crime and identifies itself with the best part of the population and connects itself with the romance and legends of the frontier, end quote. And that is indeed how those living on the frontier saw it. For those living in the center, however, all they saw were a bunch of ungrateful opportunists with little respect for the rule of law that the new nation was so desperately trying to establish. Yet how seriously could borderlanders have taken the center's commitment to the rule of law? For all that men like Antonio Zapata could see, the first thing that those in the center did when a new Federalist Constitution was passed in 1824 was try to undermine it by forcing it through a centralist funnel. The provinces, in particular the four northeastern provinces of Coahuila, Texas, Nuevo León, and Tamaulipas, had willingly given up their dreams of forming their own superstate in favor of federating with the larger collection of former Spanish North American provinces that comprised Mexico, but those four northeastern provinces had very explicitly conditioned their federation on the preservation of their local sovereignty, which hadn't really panned out. What sovereignty they had preserved was more an artifact of the disorganization of the central governments in Mexico at the time, rather than out of any respect for the rights of the pueblos. Indeed, 16 different men had worn the Mexican presidential sash between 1822 and 1835, and it was even worse at the state level. Tamaulipas had had no less than 30 governors over the same period. Then, in January of 1835, the central government instituted a new level of bureaucracy. As a part of the Centralist Congress's restructuring of government, the latest governor of Tamaulipas was authorized to himself appoint regional jefes políticos to sit between himself and the elected officials of each municipality. This new position was entirely unelected and would depend only on the governor, himself unelected under the new centralist structure of government. Elected city councilmen, particularly the up-and-coming new generation, men like Antonio Zapata and Antonio Canales, spoke out. And when they spoke out in some way, they were trying to get the ear of the man who sat now at the center of Mexican political life, Santa Ana. Santa Ana had become the quote-unquote indispensable man of Mexican politics, as a contemporary called him. He was the man to whom almost every faction in Mexico turned at one time or another, 
and for understandable reasons. He was brave, he was charismatic, and he had a keen sense of political timing. Even though he had been the one to set in motion the events that led to the downfall of Emperor Agustin Iturbide, the young Santa Ana had the sense not to overplay his hand at that time, and he resisted calls to assume the presidency back in 1822. Then, in 1829, he played a genuinely heroic role in the defense of Tampico against an attempted Spanish reinvasion, which won him the infection of the entire country. But then, too, he didn't overplay his hand. And even when he provoked the downfall of yet another Mexican chief executive in 1832, he once again had the sense not to just take the presidency by force. Instead, he went through the motion of calling for elections in 1833, in which, of course, he comfortably triumphed. And he triumphed as a Federalist. Indeed, it was to Santa Ana's public identity as a Federalist that representatives of the Rio Grande Villas were appealing when they spoke out against the newly appointed jefes políticos. But what they didn't appreciate is that Santa Ana, more than anything, was always trying to hew toward the middle of the Mexican political spectrum. And if we're being fair, Federalists had taken things a little too far between 1833 and 1835. Famously, Santa Ana had allowed his very Federalist vice president to do most of the actual governing during that two-year period. And during that time, his vice president had proven himself to be quite a radical. He'd even gone so far as to begin nationalizing church property and exiling political opponents. Then, when folks spoke out against the exile measure, he moved to exile them too. This turned off a lot of people in the Mexico City political class, and turned them against federalism. As one contemporary put it, quote, the most persuasive proof that could be given that the federal system no longer suited the nation was that now not even Santa Ana wanted it, end quote. A reference to his earlier federalist bona fides. Yet when Santa Ana stepped in and removed his vice president and then tried to moderate the federalist's more extreme measures, the federalist-controlled Congress refused to go along. So Santa Ana dissolved the Congress and called for new elections. The Mexican electorate endorsed his move by returning a much more centralist slate of legislators to Mexico City in the second half of 1834, a slate of legislators who now felt justified in trying to structurally advantage their own position in the same way that they felt the Federalists had earlier in the year. To that end, one of the centralist Congress's first acts then was to limit and disarm the local state militias, which they viewed as bastions of Federalist sympathy and a menace to their larger unification project. The problem with this measure, for frontier states like Coahuila and Tamaulipas, was that disarming their militias promised to leave them defenseless against the threats that were a real part of their existence. In the eyes of frontiersmen like Antonio Zapata and Antonio Canales, this measure was beyond insensitive. It was murderous. Members of their communities, of their families, would die at the hands of Indios Barbaros because of it. And then, the circle of discontent grew well beyond the border states. Because next, the Centralist Congress moved to dissolve the elected state legislatures, to convert these sovereign states into dependent departments, and to replace elected governors with appointed ones. From San Luis Potosí to the Yucatán, to Querétaro, to Jalisco, to Guanajuato, to Michoacán, and of course in Coahuila, Texas, Nuevo León, and Tamaulipas, Federalist uprisings began to take form. But it was in Zacatecas, a fantastically wealthy mining city in central Mexico with a well-armed and well-led state militia, 
that the first Federalist uprising broke out into the open against Santa Ana. In the spring of 1835, the governor of Zacatecas declared openly against the central government. Santa Ana, being a man of action, resigned the presidency and marched out to meet the Zacatecans. He met them, he defeated them, and then he allowed his men to sack the town of Zacatecas, which in some way would never truly recover its prominence again. The Rio Grande Villa's rejection of their appointed jefe político then looked to Santa Ana like a similar act of personal and political defiance. Combined with the mini-civil war that had broken out in neighboring Coahuila between two rival state legislatures, Santa Ana felt obliged to dispatch General Martín Perfecto de Cos to monitor the situation. Once he got to Coahuila, Perfecto de Cos put his finger on the scales and endorsed the centralist legislature and gave orders for the arrest of the fugitive Federalist governor of Coahuila, but also for the arrest of a few other notables who had all fled to Texas, such as the president of the Federalist Constitutional Convention of 1824, Lorenzo Tezavala, a loudmouth printer and debt dodger named William Barrett Travis, and a diminutive but fiery 26-year-old San Antonio polymath named José María Carvajal, who had been the secretary of the Federalist Coahuila legislature and whose name you should take note of. Antonio Zapata and Antonio Canales certainly did. September of 1835, then, found General Perfecto de Cos approaching the Rio Grande and passing through Laredo in pursuit of these Coahuiltecan fugitives. The recent regional and national turmoil had already left little frontier Laredo quite exposed to Lipan Apache and especially Comanche attacks. And since Perfecto de Cos was nearby with quite a large number of men, Laredo's alcaldes wrote to him, asking for aid against an anticipated Comanche attack. Perfecto de Cos, however, responded in the most tone-deaf way possible, by ignoring the alcalde's request, and instead demanding that they supply his army with provisions, horses, and conscripts. It landed like a bad joke, or like an open mockery of Laredoans' legitimate cry for help from the government that they supported through their import duties, and yet that seemed to refuse to give them anything in return. And so Laredo and the other Rio Grande Villas refused Perfecto de Cosa's demands, just as they had refused the earlier appointment of the centralist jefe político. They sent the general nothing and took their sweet time at even responding. Their quiet resistance to Perfecto de Cos made them a bit of a gathering spot for deserters from Perfecto de Cos's army. Eventually, Perfecto de Cos felt compelled to send another letter to Laredo ordering the alcaldes to return to him any centralist deserters in their presence. Once again, the alcaldes found ways not to comply. By the time Perfecto de Cos arrived in Laredo, he was so annoyed by the stubborn little frontiersmen there that he resorted to just openly taking the provisions that they had refused to give willingly, which of course only further hardened their hatred for this government that only seemed to care about them when it wanted to take their stuff. Eventually, Perfecto de Cos moved on, and moved on to San Antonio, and we all know what happened to him there. But his stopover in Laredo, on the way to his defeat at the Siege of Bear, left Laredo so poorly supplied that, sure enough, the town made an easy target for Comanches. A raid in December of 1835 killed three leading citizens outside of town and made off with too many horses to count. In the midst of this tragedy, a centralist army of reinforcements destined for Perfecto de Cos in San Antonio showed up on the south bank of the Rio Grande and ordered the alcalde of Laredo to drop whatever it was he was doing and ferry them across. 
The alcalde objected that he was overwhelmed and reminded the reinforcing army what all his town had endured in the last few months, not least of which was the visit by the last centralist army. In the great passive-aggressive style of Mexican bureaucratic speak, the Laredo alcalde simultaneously threatened the centralist general and begged that he take into consideration the lamentable condition of his town, quote, if this town still be considered as an integral part of the Mexican nation, end quote. In layman's terms, if you don't start treating us like fellow citizens, we might just decide that we don't want to be your fellow citizens. Things, of course, did not go well for those centralist reinforcements once they got to San Antonio. They made it to Perfecto de Cos just in time to be a part of his surrender to the so-called Revolutionary Army of Texas. When Santa Ana crossed the Rio Grande a few months later to avenge Perfecto de Cos's defeat in San Antonio, neither Santa Ana nor Perfecto de Cos had forgotten the antagonisms of the residents of the Rio Grande Villas. Yet they were smarter this time than to provoke them. And in this case, they graciously exempted the local militias of Laredo, Guerrero, and the other Rio Grande Villas from service in Santa Ana's army. Ostensibly, this was to allow them to remain in readiness against any possible Indian attacks. More likely, it stemmed from Santa Ana's open mistrust of the frontiersmen, for which reason he also refused to allow San Antonio's Presidio Company to participate in the assault on the Alamo a few weeks later. Of course, the decision not to muster the Rio Grande militias into service also denied Santa Ana the services of men like Antonio Zapata. Now 38 years old, a respected member of the community with maybe 20,000 acres to his name, and a commission as a lieutenant in the regional militia, Antonio Zapata was precisely the kind of grizzled veteran of the frontier that Santa Ana could have used to face off against Juan Seguin and his raging company, for example who ended up leaving Santa Ana blind by the time he made it to the San Jacinto Bayou. And yet, Zapata and his famous Sombrero Mantecoso weren't with Santa Ana's army, at San Jacinto or afterward. And, as most of you listeners probably know, Santa Ana himself wasn't with the remnants of Santa Ana's army after the Battle of San Jacinto. But no one at that time, Federalist or Centralist, Texian or Mexican, was quite sure whether San Jacinto was really the end of the fighting or just an interlude. And so the remnants of Santa Ana's centralist army straggled across the Rio Grande, but there they stopped to await further orders. And to the great misfortune of those living there, the Mexican centralist army then took up quarters in the Rio Grande Villas indefinitely. To support themselves, the centralist army fell back on making requisitions, as they called them. But given that these requisitions were never actually paid for, it sure felt a lot more like stealing. When local leaders, men like Antonio Zapata from Guerrero and Antonio Canales from Camargo, objected, the commanding centralists publicly called them traitors for not being willing to give more. In private correspondence, however, even the same centralist commander acknowledged, quote, that the hatred toward the military here is very great and each day it grows more as long as they are weighed down and injured with the exactions required to maintain this army, end quote. Of course, the centralist army's need to supply itself is understandable. What's less understandable, however, was that same army's refusal to engage in frontier defense. The view of the centralist officers seems to have been that they were only there on the Rio Grande for the Texas campaign. Chasing a bunch of half-naked savages on the Texas plains wasn't in their playbook. And once again, when residents of the Rio Grande Villas asked for relief, 
Their pleas were met by entirely unhelpful assurances that the leaders were, quote, fully convinced of how exposed that place is to being seriously attacked by the barbarous Indians, end quote, and were simply advised to, quote, rush to the defense of their town, end quote. Like calling 911 and having them tell you that your situation sounds really bad and you should probably do something about it. Predictably, Indian violence along the undefended Rio Grande spiked. In 1836, Comanches killed 21 people in Laredo alone and made off with more than a thousand head of livestock. In 1838, the population of Laredo was maybe half of what it had been in 1824. And the ranches north of the Rio Grande had been all but abandoned. But not by Antonio Zapata. The fact that his ranches were located north of the Rio Grande may have been part of the reason that the self-made Zapata wasn't inclined to abandon the land north of the river. But it also may have had just as much to do with the fact that he was a man of duty, and his community's lands had always stretched as far north of the river as south, and he resolved to protect them. It seems that old Sombrero Mantecoso Zapata spent a large portion of his time during these years in the saddle, pursuing Comanche raiders and adding another layer of sweat to his famed hatband. In February of 1837, a 500-strong party of Comanche warriors descended on Zapata's hometown of Guerrero, killing 1,400 horses and cattle and too many sheep and goats to count. Despite being badly outnumbered, Zapata pursued the war party and caught up to them, and he whipped them, killing or capturing 16 of the raiders without any apparent loss on his side. The Comanches retaliated, this time with a party of a thousand strong, sweeping the north side of the Rio Grande all the way to the coast. It was during the pursuit of this raiding party that Zapata engaged in that memorable bout of individual combat with the Comanche chief that we described back in episode 3, where he isolated the chief, charged him, yanked him off his horse by his ponytail, and then stomped him to death with his boot heel. All this after the Comanche had put an arrow through his thigh. One final anecdote from this period demonstrates the extent to which Antonio Zapata's legend had taken hold by 1838. After being captured by a Comanche raiding party, a girl from the Rio Grande Villas had the presence of mind to tell her captors that she was Zapata's daughter. The amusing part about this was that she was notably light-skinned. Even the Comanches knew that Zapata was dark-skinned, a mulatto to be precise. They challenged the girl on her claim, but she didn't back down. She might have been lying, but the Comanche warriors weren't willing to bet their lives on it. The warrior carrying her on his mount stopped, threw her off, and told her to run back home. Quote, we want nothing to do with Zapata, end quote, he said. As amusing as that one anecdote may be, however, these were hellacious years for the Rio Grande Villas, none of which was made easier by the appearance of the new republic to their north. The Republic of Texas claimed that its borders reached all the way to the Rio Grande. And though Texians never really tried to enforce this claim, they did test it occasionally. Famed scout Def Smith led a force into the no-man's land between San Antonio and Laredo in 1837, and the famous ranger captain Jack Hayes did the same in 1838. Mexican government forces returned the favor, harassing trade routes up to San Antonio, and in particular, targeting the ranches of prominent Tejanos like Juan Seguin. The primary wealth of the region remained its endless herds of cattle and horses, and many of these raids blurred the lines between rounding up and rustling. Texians would frequently cite raids by Mexican bandits along the Nueces. Mexicans, including Antonio Canales, would claim that Texian colonists 
stole over 1 million pesos worth of livestock during these same years. The Mexican central government maintained a position of open hostility toward Texas, but in some ways, this policy punished its own citizens more than it did the Texians. When the government forbade under punishment of death any, quote, criminal and treasonous, end quote, trade with the Texians, what they were actually doing was hamstringing the economy of the Rio Grande Vias. Then, when the government prohibited its citizens from even crossing to the north bank of the Rio Grande, they effectively forfeited the region to the Indios Barbaros and the Texian raiders. Around this same time, too, something happened that brought Zapata into the centralist government's crosshairs. We don't know exactly what it was. Maybe he got caught smuggling. Maybe he was just on the wrong side of a customs collector. But in short order, the government took everything from him. One estimate placed the value of the property confiscated from Zapata at nearly 70,000 pesos, which would be a staggering sum, and so it's probably exaggerated. But the clear fact is that in 1838, sweat of his brow Zapata had to sit by as debt holders auctioned off his land, his livestock, and, quote, all his earthly possessions, end quote. All of this, too, came on the heels of family tragedy. In 1836, his wife, Asuncion, died of dropsy. And in a cruel final touch, Zapata was forced to sell his dead wife's jewelry to settle his debts. Antonio Zapata, the great self-made stockman and protector of Guerrero Tamaulipas, was, at the age of 41, broke, widowed, and left to raise his four daughters by himself. It seems that the only thing that saved Zapata from total ruin in 1838 was the generosity of his old mentor and partner, Bernardo Gutierrez de Lara. Apparently, Gutierrez de Lara was one of Zapata's largest debt holders. And Gutierrez de Lara forgave Zapata his portion of the debts. This, for me, is the most compelling proof of their long and deep relationship. Things weren't going very well for the Mexican central government either. Following the events in Texas of 1836, Mexican centralists had dispensed with the formalities and just taken over the levers of power in Mexican government, formally annulling the Federalist Constitution of 1824. Tensions remained high in the Mexican political system during this period, but government receipts did not. The Mexican government during these years was perennially underfunded, over-indebted, and squeezed by European lenders. And this situation, too, came to a head in 1838. It's going to sound like a joke, but it's not. But that year, the government of France demanded 600,000 pesos from the Mexican government as, again, not a joke, reparations for damages suffered to a French pastry chef's shop outside of Mexico City. When Mexico predictably refused the extortionist demand, the French blockaded Veracruz, cutting off the government's principal source of revenue. The Mexican government responded to the crisis by implementing a new tax on June 9, 1838. But in light of everything else they were enduring, the confiscation of their property by the centralist army, attacks by Indians and Texians, and the artificial restraint of trade and a self-defeating policy meant to punish the Texians, this tax felt like a final straw for the residents of the Rio Grande Vias. Still, Antonio Zapata was not a radical. And really, politics in most of human history is the privilege of the privileged. Zapata was probably more worried about raising his daughters and getting back on his feet financially. But the 36-year-old Antonio Canales 
was a different kind of animal. Canales had actually been a member of the radical Federalist legislature that Santa Ana had dissolved in 1834. And for Canales, this new tax of June 1838 was proof of the centralist regime's desperation and total indifference to the concerns of borderlanders. He began to ask aloud what this new tax really aimed to do, other than to, quote, aggravate the misery, end quote, of the Rio Grande Villas. Would the Villas receive any benefit or increased aid from the new revenue? I think we all know what the answer to that was. All of which raised the question again, what were frontier states like Tamaulipas, Nuevo León, and Coahuila really getting out of this new Mexican nation? As Antonio Canales circulated in the Villas asking these questions, as Antonio Canales went around the Rio Grande Villas asking these questions, he found that he wasn't alone. Not only in his frustration, but also in his sense that the time for patient suffering had passed. Independent of Antonio Canales, on October 7, 1838, the army garrison in Tampico, on the opposite corner of Tamaulipas, pronounced against the centralist government and declared for the reestablishment of the Federalist Constitution of 1824. Centralist forces in the region moved their focus to Tampico, weakening their presence in the Rio Grande Villas. And as he looked upon the almost entirely unguarded armory in his adopted hometown of Camargo, Antonio Canales got an idea. On the next episode of The Republic of the Rio Grande. Thank you for listening. In February of 2022, we'll be conducting almost a month's worth of fieldwork to uncover archaeological evidence for the location of the Battle of Medina, the largest battle in Texas history. If you want to learn more about the battle, go back and listen to season two of the series. If you want to learn more about our search and our partnership with the 501c3 American Veterans Archaeological Recovery Project, go to www.brandonseal.com. Editing for this episode was provided by Susana Canseco. The portrait of Antonio Zapata that serves as the cover art for this season was created by artist Matt Tumlinson. Check him out at Matt underscore Tumlinson on Instagram. Sound engineering for this episode was performed by Stephen Bennett, who also arranged and performed the theme music. The theme music was actually written, however, by Mercurio Martinez, a Zapata County rancher, county treasurer, school principal, and descendant of one of Escandon's founding families. Martinez was the co-author of the first history of Zapata County, which he titled The Kingdom of Zapata. And in his spare time, he penned corridos. Well, I found one of his corridos in his collected papers at Texas A&M's Cushing Library. And in that corrido, Martinez had written a melody that he had intended for his Corrido de la Presa, the story of the construction of Lake Falcón and of his role in preserving what he could of the communities later lost to the lake. I love that we've been able to bring back to life this melody here and I thank Stephen for it. You can check out Stephen's work at NoSoMedia. That's N-O-S-O-Media.com. I want to call out here for recognition the work of Juan Jose Gallegos. A retired NASA engineer, Gallegos went back to get a master's in history from the University of Houston and produced an incredible thesis dedicated to the life of Antonio Zapata, which in part inspired this season. Thanks as well to Professor Stan Green at Texas A&M University in Laredo. Professor Green actually has a book coming out soon about these events and others, currently titled Las Villas del Norte, a history from 1748 to 1821. Definitely don't miss the Museum of the Republic of the Rio Grande in downtown Laredo if you're ever there. They have brand new exhibits that they've just opened telling more of the story that we're recounting here. And if you're interested in the history or genealogy of the Villas del Norte, 
check out Moises de la Garza's website, lasviasdelnorte.com. Thanks additionally to Cesarino Hosa, my touring buddy for these old towns in Mexico, and descendant himself of some of the first founders of the Lower Rio Grande. And thank you to Javier Cervantes with the Tatpilan Coahuilteca Nation and Juan Mancias with the Carrizo Comecrudo Nation for their guidance too. For more information generally, check out our website at www.brandonseal.com.